Access Pro Rata, where we take just 10 minutes to get you smarter on the collision of tech, business, and politics. Sponsored by Silicon Valley Bank. Ideas Bank here. I'm Dan Mac. On today's show, the China trade deal that isn't and why WeWork is running out of cash. But first, Turkish disaster. Just over one week ago, President Trump announced that he would recall a small group of U.S. military personnel who were serving in northern Syria, advising Kurdish forces in their fight against ISIS. The move was immediately assailed by both the left and the right in a rare show of bipartisan opposition. In short, critics believed the move would give Turkey a green light to attack the Syrian Kurds, whom Turkey has long argued are terrorists. Moreover, this would betray a military ally and could help ISIS reconstitute itself, since the Kurds were guarding thousands of detained prisoners. If bombs were to start falling, critics said, the Kurds would have no choice but to abandon their posts. And what we've learned in the week plus since Trump's decision is that the critics were right. Turkey has attacked. Civilians and Kurdish fighters have been killed, and ISIS prisoners have escaped. President Trump had threatened to obliterate the Turkish economy if Turkey did this, but only did so after announcing the withdrawal, and now the White House is playing catch-up on possible sanctions. The bottom line here is that this is fast becoming a humanitarian, foreign policy, and national security disaster, all based on a surprise decision that hasn't been adequately explained and few can understand. Yes, President Trump campaigned on pulling America out of foreign entanglements, but just days after his Syria decision, he announced the deployment of more than a thousand new troops into Saudi Arabia. So what really happened? In 15 seconds, we'll get the backstory from Axios's Jonathan Swan. But first, this. This episode is brought to you by Silicon Valley Bank. Know everything about coding, but not so much about banking? For more than 35 years, Silicon Valley Bank has been helping high-growth companies navigate through each stage of the startup journey. Stay tuned to learn more. Silicon Valley Bank. Ideas. Bank here. We're joined now by Axios' Jonathan Swan. The gist of your reporting last night is that Trump for the last two years kept saying to Erdogan, you know, go ahead and attack, but you'll own it, and never thought he would actually go ahead and attack. But why did Trump bluff in the first place, except instead of saying to Turkey, don't go? I think there are two reasons. One is because President Trump's foreign policy style, as described by his aides who've listened on his phone calls, been in meetings with him, is blustery. Bluffing is a central part of what he does. The second part of it is Trump's entire bluff, if you call it that, and that's what his aides call it, was it was the same script. He would run the same play time and again. It, it would basically be Erdogan would say to Trump, and this dates back to you know May of 2017, Erdogan would say to Trump, we've got this Kurdish problem on our border. We've got to fix it. They're terrorists. We want to go in and, and take care of it. And Trump would say, you know what? Go for it. You want to go in there? Okay, you know, you're going to have to watch out for our guys because you shoot on our guys, there's going to be problems. But you know what? It's all yours. Take care of ISIS. You can take care of the whole thing. You own the whole thing. You can take all of it. And Erdogan would demure, according to people who've listened to the two leaders talk. Erdogan would sort of back off and say, oh, no, no, that's not what we're going to do. And most likely because the caliphate at that early point had not been wiped out. And the Turkish army, even though it's one of the larger in NATO is still pretty weak and not capable of actually dealing with ISIS. So he was not keen to move in. Trump just kept running the same play again and again and again. And this time, not this Sunday, but the previous Sunday, when Trump sort of said, OK, fine, but you own it. You want to go in, you own it. And Erdogan was like, fine, that's exactly what we'll do. The criticism from both left and right and former military, et cetera, right. was immediate. And it wasn't just criticism. It was, you do this. This is what will happen. That's what we've seen happen. Uh -huh. did, did Trump not realize in the moment what was coming? I think part of the problem here is 
Trump really doesn't care about the Kurds. Trump wants out of the situation. In his mind, he can put a big tick next to clearing out the ISIS caliphate, and he just wants to get U.S. troops out, full stop. So even in those early conversations when he was saying to Erdogan, OK, you want to go in, but you own all these problems, he would then, in the next breath, say, but you know what? I never wanted to be there in the first place. And, you know, my guys tell me we're winning and we may not be there for that much longer. So he was already starting to slightly turn on the dimmer of that green light back two years ago. So it's not like Trump was desperate to keep Erdogan out of Syria. He was telling him it was a bad idea. Politically, though, wasn't he desperate to make sure ISIS doesn't reconstitute? If you go back to the 2016 campaign, defeating ISIS, defeating ISIS, defeating ISIS, he runs a massive risk. There's whatever, you know, 12 months till the next election. If there's a reconstitution and an attack, let alone in the United States, that destroys, you know, Trump's four years of foreign policy success in his mind. I just don't have reporting to know what was going through his mind when he said this to Erdogan on Sunday. But my understanding from people who've spoken to the president in the last three, four days is that he is starting to realize that the result of that phone call is a disaster on the ground. And we are now seeing these reports of ISIS prisoners escaping because the Syrian Kurds being redirected, they're fighting the Turks and they can't do both, guard the prisoners and fight the Turks. So My expectation, based on my latest reporting, is that the president is going to support heavy sanctions on Turkey, largely because he has no choice. Congress is likely to have an overwhelming bipartisan majority on this. President Trump has angered the Hill, Capitol Hill, almost more than I've seen at any point in his presidency. I could probably compare it to Charlottesville. It's it's so intense and probably worse, actually, because you have people like allies like Lindsey Graham and Marco Rubio, who the White House just totally blindsided with this decision. I talked to Lindsey Graham last week. Just think about this. I said to Lindsey Graham, how did you find out about the president's decision to withdraw the U.S. troops from northern Syria? I mean, this is your pet issue. This is what you care about. You talked about this with the president. You've been an ally. He said, you know how I found out? They announced it Sunday night. You know, Lindsey Graham was mm-hmm. asleep, I think, when they announced it. He wakes up Monday morning to a phone call at 6 a.m. from, I think it was an aide, it might have been a friend, saying, you'll never guess what they've done. That's how Lindsey Graham, one of the key allies in the Senate, Republican allies, found out about this consequential presidential decision. Are you surprised by Graham this morning? Because he seems, and and maybe I'm reading it wrong, in responding to that threat of sanctions, severe sanctions that you said, seems to be kind of saying, well, good, okay, then things are okay. If we we put the sanctions on, then the huge blunder is... No, Band-aided no, no, no. Over. look, 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 Lindsey Graham is, is walking a very delicate line. He's trying to keep the situation so that President Trump continues to take his phone calls. So he, you know, he's kind of walking this delicate line of not being too critical of President Trump. Lindsey Graham knows very well what a disaster this decision was, and he thinks it's morally indefensible and awful. He is trying to make the best of a really bad situation. If you analyze his Fox and Friends appearance this morning, it's sort of audience of one. He's blaming all of this on Turkey and Erdogan. He's absolving President Trump of responsibility, and he's praising President Trump preemptively for supporting sanctions against Turkey. And I don't know if it's wishful thinking or if he really believes this, but he's also saying that he thinks that the sanctions will stop the bloodshed and pull Turkey out. But the most important line in Lindsey Graham's appearance this morning on Fox and Friends was none of that. It was him saying that we need 
to get a small footprint back in Syria. He is still hasn't given up on convincing President Trump to put a small contingent of U.S. forces back in Syria to calm things down. Do you think that's possible? No, I don't think Trump will do that. I, I really don't. I think that he's so dug in on this that he won't do that, and he would see this as such a reversal. But Lindsey Graham clearly hasn't given up hope of convincing the president to do that. How is the White House reconciling or maybe not reconciling what's happened with Syria in terms of pulling the troops out? As President Trump has said, you know, campaign promise, get troops out of the Middle East with this news in the exact same week of a deployment of new troops into Saudi Arabia. Uh, They're not reconciling it. And in fact, I, I spoke to an official yesterday who made that very point about how can you say the president keeps saying endless wars. I'm getting, this is like he's trying to justify the Syria decision, removing a small contingent under the banner of ending endless wars. But you cannot, with a straight face, make that argument when you're also saying that we're deploying 1,800 additional troops to Saudi Arabia to deter Iranian aggression. It's just there is no coherence in their strategy. Jonathan Swan of Axios, thank you so much for joining us. My final two right after this. Earlier, we highlighted Silicon Valley Bank's experience with helping startups. But with Silicon Valley Bank, you're also getting a partner committed to supporting you as you strive to hit your next milestones. Perhaps that's why 50% of VC-backed tech and life science companies choose Silicon Valley Bank. Visit svb.com forward slash next to learn more. Silicon Valley Bank. Ideas. Bank here. Now it's time for my final two. And first up is the U.S.-China trade war, which last week seemed to be heading toward at least a partial truce. President Trump announced that both sides reached a, quote, very substantial phase one deal. But now it seems no deal was actually signed and that China is insisting on another round of high-level talks before putting pen to paper. Even U.S. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin this morning told CNBC that the goalposts are being moved a bit, acknowledging that phase one remains a work in progress. It's also worth noting that the biggest issues for U.S. negotiators around IP theft and forced tech transfer weren't even tentatively resolved in phase one. The bottom line here, trade wars remain bad and hard to win. And finally this morning, WeWork is running out of money. Sources tell me it can probably get through Thanksgiving, but not to Christmas. At least not without a bailout from existing investor SoftBank, which is partially to blame for the current mess, or from a group of Wall Street lenders, which is the sort of last-ditch effort that often comes before bankruptcy. So how did this happen? Well, WeWork had $2.4 billion in cash through the end of June, which on its regular spending pace should have brought it well into 2020. But word is that it ramped up spending after June, believing proceeds from its IPO and a concurrent private debt placement would easily absorb the increase. But as we know, there was no IPO, and now Red Ink threatens to drown the entire company. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Tim Shovers and Jesse Lee, have a great Columbus Day or Indigenous Peoples Day or in my town, Heritage Day. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Pro Rata Podcast.